The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Welcome everyone to One Hour at a Time. Again, my name is John McAndrew and I'm your host today and we appreciate very much our guest who is uh, Dr. Omar Manajwala. And he has a book out which um, connects a whole lot of dots in all the research about neuroscience and spirituality. And it's called Craving, Why We Can't Seem to Get Enough. And uh, it's very fascinating reading. And I know the listeners know that I I enjoy this topic very much. And and, uh, so do our listeners. So we appreciate you being here. And I want to tell you just a little bit about the doctor. Um. He's a senior vice president, chief medical officer at Catasys in Los Angeles. He's a psychiatrist. Uh, he's on the American Board of Addiction Medicine and served for many years as a medical director at Hazelden. And we'll talk about Hazelden more today. Before that, he was medical director at the Farley Center and the chief resident in psychiatry at Duke University Medical Center. And doctor, welcome to our show. Yeah, thank you. It's it's great to be here, and uh, uh, pleasure to uh, to be on. And you've, we spoke briefly before you came on about uh, you're out talking about your book, and uh, you mentioned that it's exciting to kind of connect the dots in something that hasn't been connected as far as cravings, and uh, and you know we we find ourselves wanting something, craving something strong enough, us human beings will do just about anything um, at the expense of, as we know, our bodies and brains and bank accounts and everything. So, you know, the question we always have is, why, why do we sometimes get these cravings for all these things, food, alcohol, sex, cigarettes, on and on and on. So, you know, why do we, what is driving us, you know? And I think you're going to be able to tell us that <laughs> in this show, you know, craving. Why, what what kind of motivated you to connect all these dots? Right. So, you know, and I was actually surprised because I, I thought for sure someone had already written this book. And because over the years I had noticed working with patients with all, all kinds of addictions, and, and even those who don't have addictions but who are struggling for, from cravings like, you know, the, the overweight and others. Right. Uh, and, and I was noticing that uh, people were often um, doing things that were making their cravings worse, and I was, I was wondering why. And there was this, so there's the things people do to manage their cravings that I would observe over the years. And then there was this body of research that was growing um, that really seemed to describe what will actually work for cravings. And as that research sort of matured and developed and we learned more and more about 
about what causes cravings and what really works to manage cravings. And of course, we're, we're still learning more, and there's a lot more we need to learn about that. But the gap was um, astonishing to me between what people were doing to manage their cravings. In some cases, you know, it wouldn't help. In some cases, it would actually make things worse. And what we actually knew about cravings. So that, it was that gap that led me to say, well, okay, let me see what people have written about this. And, and when I went uh, to look up um, what was written on cravings, I, I found that no one had really connected all the dots there, especially between, uh, especially between different types of addictions and cravings that are not related to addictions, like you know, cravings in, in obesity and, and in other areas. So I wanted to, I wanted to pull together the science um, in a way that, um, you know, somebody who was, you know, walking through the airport bookstore and, and, you know, wanted to be able to pick something up and say, okay, I'm, I want to be able to read this in, in a few hours and have some general understanding of what causes this and what I can do about it. So I wanted to write something that was really accessible that connected those things. And that's, that's what, that's how this project bore fruit. Yeah. And it, and it really accomplishes that because, uh, you. uh, you know, in reading it, it, it lays out very simply, and, and, and it's interesting for me because it kind of goes from the science and the history. I think we'll talk a little bit about that, you know, the history of what we know and how we've dealt with this before, and, and then it kind of turns the corner into the spiritual world. And being medical director at Hazelden, which I kind of I want to thank them again for the hundredth time, all the work they do and and you know, allowing people like you to carry this message to to thousands and thousands of of, of people that such a that need help with these, you know. And yeah. uh, again, I just want to thank Hazelden, but those years there must have given you incredible insight into human beings and cravings, right? Well, yeah, and you know, there's no dodging spirituality if you work at Hazelden, as I'm sure. Yeah. You know, so, and and that was the astonishing. I mean, that's you know, that's the astonishing finding is as you follow the research and as you follow the biology and the genetics and the behaviors, and if you look at what really works to manage cravings, the I think the perhaps not for your listeners, but for the rest of the world, you know, the surprising conclusion is that behaviors that are spiritual behaviors appear to really have dramatic impact on craving, and there, so there's a link between the the spirituality and the actions of spirituality, and the, and the way we change, uh, the way our, our thoughts change, our actions change, our experiences change, our brains change, and and then our cravings change, and uh-huh. that connection is mysterious and and surprising, and we're starting to open the black box behind that. Yeah, let's go back and go start from the beginning. Sure. There's something interesting at the front of the book. You go all the way back to 1899. <laughs> And some of us are old enough to remember our our parents and grandparents talking about, you know, alcoholism and drug addiction and all those nasty little things were all always kind of swept under the rug. And the approaches from 1899, you talk about something out of an actual medical textbook as a treatment for alcohol cravings. Could you share? Share that with us because we've come a long way. Right, right. Now uh, you're you're referring to the first uh, mention of cravings in the uh, in the in the Merck manual. 
yeah. when, uh, which, which really uh, was one of the earliest places I could find specific mention of it. And the Merck Manual is a medical textbook. And actually, spirit, uh, aromatic spirits of ammonia and hot water were recommended as, a, as treatments for alcohol cravings. I, I don't know that those have ever actually been tested, but my, my guess is they probably are not uh, as effective as uh, uh, naltrexone and acamprosate. Yeah, you know, and then we. So, but they, but, but you know, at that time, people were desperate, and so they would they would try anything. The people were aware of the behavior was were very very obvious, and this oh, yeah. journey of where we came from and where we're at now. Um, can can you describe for me specifically what a craving is? Well, so, and people use the word craving to mean so many different things, yeah. you know, uh-huh. so people crave attention, and, you know, some people say the United States is craving oil in the Middle East, and, you know, I do a, a Google News alert on cravings, because if you write a book on cravings, you need to know what people are saying about cravings, and what, sure. what I usually get uh, is uh, some stuff about, you know, how America is craving X, Y, or Z, then I get a whole slew of information about what pregnant celebrities are craving what foods. I'm I'm now an expert on that as a result of that. And, and, and then you hear about research and science on cravings. So what, what I mean in the book by cravings, and, and so there's no clear definition, no agreed-upon definition of cravings, but the way I describe it in the book is, and this is a good working definition, is right. that craving is a strong desire that if it, if it doesn't get fulfilled, it results in a powerful physical and mental suffering. And so, some others have described it as, wanting something so badly that you can't think of it, of something else and that's the that's the that second definition is how craving landed its way into DSM-5 which is the latest psychiatric textbook yep. of 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 um mental disorders so mm-hmm. yeah so either of those two definitions are good working definitions of craving so and when does uh craving turn into addiction well, you know, cravings cravings are experiences. Cravings are in, a, a craving is a feeling is the best way to put it. A, addictions are disorders that are characterized by experiences and also by behaviors. Mm-hmm. And so people with addiction will experience cravings, but not everybody who craves. And think about the last time you craved something, whether it was chocolate cake or whatever else. You know, that's not necessarily addiction. So when we look at the criteria for addiction specifically, and those those have changed, and not everybody agrees on what they are, but generally with addiction, you're talking about compulsive behaviors, things you do that are self-destructive, that you can't control, that repeat over and over again, that produce bad things in, in your life and in the lives of, of those around you. And we, we've shown you know, changes in the brain and all sorts of biological and genetic changes associated with, with addiction as well. So cravings are a feature of addiction, but cravings are, are broader than that. I mean, you know, I, I would argue that, that cravings are, for example, responsible in large part for the obesity epidemic. Um, you know, you think back to the last time you, you went on a diet, if you ever did, and, and uh, uh, what caused you to go off of it. Chances are it was a craving. So, you know, cravings really are at the heart of a lot of self-destructive behaviors, not just addictions, but certainly addictions. Mm-hmm. So the big, the million-dollar question then comes with craving and, you know, when it becomes a compulsive addictive right. is how... What is our, you know, what is our brain doing in this process, and how is our brain involved? And I know that, 
you know, the research has led you to, to many conclusions, you know, not just with alcohol and drugs, but every sort of behavior that can go from craving to compulsive. So what, what happens in our brain? And, and you tell us about it in the book, and it's very easy to understand. Uh, can you start us on that little journey? Yeah, sure. We can we can start down that, and I think it, it is uh, it's hard to simplify, believe it or not, which is why I wanted to to write the book about it. But um, to, to give your your listeners a sense of it, um, you know, cravings are are complex themselves. So if you think of the the the, the faculties or the, the the parts of your mind uh, that are involved in cravings, it's not just reward. It's not just pleasure and reward as we sometimes oversimplify addiction to. But rather, it's, it involves learning, uh, things like memory and conditioning and habits. It involves what we call executive function, which is a, a, a fancy word for the ability to plan and make decisions, to inhibit your impulses, which is very important with cravings, to delay gratification. That's critical when it comes to, to cravings. It, it, uh, it affects the parts of your, your brain that are involved in cognitive awareness, your reaction to your internal perceptions, and your emotions. You know, we, we know that stress, for example, leads to cravings. We know that people who experience depression and anxiety or mood changes are more likely to crave. So there are emotional factors as well. As well. And each of, those, each of those faculties, if you will, each of those capacities of the brain um, reside not only in different parts of the brain, but in different circuits that connect those different parts of the brain. So what I try to do in the book is really kind of break it down and say, okay, here, here are the parts of the brain that are and the circuits in the brain that are primarily responsible for this. And here is what we know about how these things change during cravings and, and how they change when you're not craving. And, right. uh, and, and there are many such, uh, many such parts of the brain, if you will, that, that have been shown to be involved. So, and it's not a simple answer, and we have a couple minutes here left in this first segment, but if I had to... You know, we, there, are, there are so many diagrams of the brain right, on the Internet. Right. You know, I found one of you know, just... So to simplify this, what are the two or three, four major parts of the brain that, that we're going to talk about today and that, that you explain in your book? Well, I would say maybe deep in the, in the brain, there's a region called the median forebrain bundle, and that's part of the reward circuit. So there's the ventral tegmental area or the VTA, we'll call it, and that releases dopamine into the nucleus accumbens, which is another area, and that's sort of your, that's misnamed the pleasure center, if you will, that's, that's the reward center of the brain, the nucleus accumbens, and then that projects to different parts of the brain that then project to the, to the prefrontal cortex, and the prefrontal cortex is probably the most interesting area because that's involved in suppressing habitual behavior. Um, and it's involved in planning and decision-making. And there are, there are, there's a lot going on there. I mean, there's also the hypothalamus, which is involved quite a bit, and uh, uh, the amygdala, which is involved in the emotional significance or the salience, or the, the, um, the emotional salience of your experience. Um, so those are some of the areas that I, that I talk about in the book. Uh-huh. You mentioned, I think we'll just close this section, uh, with most people that talk about neuroscience and plasticity of the brain, we'll get in that into the next section, and we know about these parts of our noggin. This whole story about uh, Phineas Gage, which really wasn't that long ago, right? 
sort of opened the door accidentally to how we look at the brain and plasticity. And uh, you mentioned it in the book, and I and I think it's worth just kind of quickly telling us about old Phineas. And I, I think actually we'll have that be the question for you when we come back. We're going to take a, a little break here, and uh, we're talking to Dr. Omar Manajwala, and we're talking about his book, Why We Can't Seem to Get Enough, and we're talking about cravings and, and much, much more, and we'll be right back with One Hour at a Time. Listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Better communication means better relationships in every sense of the word. When you communicate more effectively and interact more effectively, your life is lived more effectively. Tune in to Talk Time with Trish, featuring host Trish Ferrante and co-host Lisa Stewart. Our program is all about the human element. We are all comprised of parts and stuff that we may be aware of or others may be aware of. When we become aware of what others are aware of, it means more to us. Tune in every Friday at noon Eastern Time, 9 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health and Wellness. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back to One Hour at a Time. Uh, this is John McAndrew. We've been speaking with Dr. Omar Manajwala, and his, his new book is called Craving, Why We Can't Seem to Get Enough. And uh, we've talked a little bit in our first segment about what cravings, uh, which is really a hard thing to define, and how it passes to compulsive and addictive behavior. And, and what the doctor has done is really kind of connected some dots with that all of these disorders that we call them, whatever, alcohol, food, sex, are all, the brain is kind of doing the same and similar things, and and the research is finding that. And when we left off in the last segment, I'm fascinated. It's hard to not talk about neuroscience (laughs) without, without mentioning this poor guy that got a, big nail through his head or something quite large. Could you (laughs) 
Tell us yeah. the story about old Mr. Gage, could you? Yeah, I guess 150 years later, it's okay to, to laugh about it. I, I, you know, at the time, I'm sure it was rather, uh, rather difficult. Uh, yeah, back yeah. In, in September, mid-September of 1848, this 25-year-old married railroad worker who lived in Vermont was uh, compacting some explosive powder into a boulder using a tamping rod that was about three and a half uh, feet long and wow. about an inch and a half uh, or an inch and a quarter in diameter. And uh, he was looking away towards some of his co-workers when the powder accidentally sparked and, and, it, and it blew up and it, it propelled this rod clear through his, uh, in, into his left cheek, cheekbone and, and through the floor of his left eye socket, not to get too gruesome, and, uh, and out the midline of his skull. And, uh, and it landed about, uh, about 30 feet away from him. This rod went straight through his head. And Phineas survived. He survived with a hole clear through his brain. And, uh, you know, he was a well-loved guy, so his coworkers came immediately to help him. Uh, within minutes, he was speaking. With this hole in his brain, he was speaking just fine. He was rushed in a, in a cart to a local hotel, and he was able to climb a flight of stairs and, and change his wow. clothes, all the while with a hole through his skull. And what was amazing about Phineas is he was, he was examined by a physician shortly right there on the scene. And, uh, and af- as a result of that examination, this doctor, Dr. Harlow, published a paper that basically said, I'm summarizing it, man survives with hole through his skull, losing hunk of brain with no problems whatsoever. And so his interpretation was, hey, you can lose this chunk of your brain and not have any problems. Which right. begs the question, what exactly is this part of your brain for anyway? <laughs> Right. And so right. And so then it was his wife who years later said, Look, Doctor Harlow, I appreciate you helping Phineas, but you were wrong about him not needing this part of a brain and Phineas had lost this prefrontal cortex, a part of his prefrontal cortex, and he became impulsive and he became judgmental and he had trouble planning activities, he became isolative. Um, you know, and these behaviors sound a lot like addiction. So, uh, you know, Dr. Harlow was forced to go back and, and write another paper and publish it many years later that basically said, oops, sorry about what I told you earlier, that it should have been man loses hunk of brain and, and loses ability to do all these really important functions. And, and it turns out that Phineas, you know, Phineas eventually became a circus freak show, carrying that rod around everywhere. He became isolative. He lost everything really worthwhile in life, you might say, and, and in... And in um, you know, in, what I say in the book is that it would have been better for Phineas had he lost his ability to talk or walk or, or, or listen or even see. He lost the part of his brain he really needed most, and that's the part of the brain that's lost in, in, in addiction. Not lost entirely, but certainly damaged, and, and that's a part of the brain that's involved in these very powerful cravings that, that people suffer that drive them to do the sorts of behaviors that you were talking about at the beginning of the hour. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and it's pretty incredible. Uh, the little, little did we know right. uh, when the accident first happened, and then as things were revealed, it really did open up science. And then when, um, mm-hmm. I, just as my personal question, so people obviously the doctors like you had to be going. I wonder what's going on. There's mm-hmm. more to this part of the brain. When did? the possibility to really get the imaging and look and see and then take the next step into neuroscience happen? Because he got the rod in his head. uh, You said what year that was, and I forgot. 
Yeah, that was 1848. Yeah, yeah that's a long time ago. Yeah, yeah. When well, was you know, I'll tell you this, and, and, and like many great discoveries in medicine, and certainly in addiction, this is true, it was a family member who taught us what was really going on, and it was uh, Phineas's wife who told us. And I, I'm that's why I, whenever I teach, you know, students and 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 educate folks on taking care or helping, you know, the privilege of being able to participate in people's recovery, always listen to the family members because what you know, much of what I've learned about cravings has been directly from family members who have shared with me. Well, no, this is okay. He says this is what's happening, but this is what really happened, and uh, that. That has been so instructive, but you know, and and really, our research uh, uh, then advanced with with um, uh, in the fifties with the rather famous experiment that I'm sure your listeners have ho- heard about, where the electrodes were implanted in the rat, rat brain. So before we had imaging, we had sort of wires and implants into animals, right. uh, and then you know we had imaging after that, and now now uh, and then genetics, obviously Watson and Crick, and that was huge for us to find out about DNA and, and genetics and genetics and the role. And now what we're doing is, and now we have epigenetics, which is that uh, somewhat maybe mysterious science of how the environment actually affects the expression of your genes. I talk a little bit about that in the book too. And yeah. so, um, so it is, it's very much, it, it, but one of the points that I really make in the brain is, uh, in the book, <laughs> is mm-hmm. uh, don't put too much emphasis on the brain because um, People will use pictures or images of the brain to justify all sorts of things. And you've got to be very careful about that. I mean, I I think really look to the science of what actually happens in people. And then, you know, I think because brain science is very difficult, brain science moves along slowly. It it may not sound that way based on what you're reading in the papers, but, you know, every time someone does a study of six or seven people and takes a picture of their brain, they assume they've figured something else out about about the brain, and I would caution this because we, we really do have to proceed gingerly and, and wait for larger studies before we confirm what we really know about some of these aspects in the brain. Right, and the yeah. brain is reacting to, as you say, the environment, Oh yeah, genetics, all sorts of other things. So, well, we got the noggin, we've got Phineas. Thank you, Phineas. Right, for, right. And, and Phineas. you brought up a really important point, and, and anybody that works in the dual diagnosis area of recovery realizes evidence-based practices, a very big piece of that is the family. Yeah. And again, you brought that up from the very beginning, that it was the family that helped because they observed, they knew the history, uh, and, and it's a pretty important point that you make there. So we'll I'm always super, surprised we'll how often around the brain, okay? Yeah, right, right. <laughs> and sure. as a piece of all this, and chapter three, you talk about how cravings drive self-defeating behaviors, and, and about the tenacity of cravings, and and about how how the brain can actually lie to us. You know, right. and tell right. us things that aren't true. Right, right. You know, it's interesting. I, I tell you, cravings, cravings are tenacious. I think sometimes, if you're, especially if you're actually having a craving, uh, you know, it feels like it's going to last forever, and it feels like there's nothing else you can, you can do to get rid of it. Um, and, uh, and often it feels completely hopeless. So they're very tenacious. They come back. They come when you, especially when you don't want them, at the worst possible time. Yeah, uh, they're beyond inconvenient, and so they're very they're very tenacious, and they drive these self de- defeating behaviors. You know, I I always say that um, managing cravings, that the science of managing cravings is not the nine one one call 
when you're having the craving, two in the morning. Obviously, there are things you have to do at that time, but but right. really prevention is the approach to managing cravings. And the reason is because, you know, what you don't realize when you're craving is there's all sorts of things that are happening that are setting you up to crave. And so in the middle of the craving, you may not realize that it was stress or some cue that you saw or some memory that triggered you to have this craving, you just are craving and you can't see that clearly. And we know that, by the way, because when people are craving, their memories actually change. And we have some great uh, studies, which I, I cite in the book, about how memory itself actually changes during cravings. And so you can't, you can't uh, rely on that. And yes, your brain, your brain lies to you. I, I think um, you know, your, your brain lies to you all the time, even when you're healthy, in order for you to survive. It's, it's important that your brain lie to you um, because your, your brain, it, I guess the easiest way to describe this is that your brain is designed to prioritize efficiency over accuracy. Efficiency was what was important to adaptation and survival. And your brain was developed to categorize rather than memorize. So it will produce errors of all kinds along memorization and along accuracy lines in order to meet its goal, its required survivor goal of efficiency and categorization. And some of those errors are what, what drive cravings. And I talk in the book about different types of biases that, that the brain can produce and, and how those biases trick you into believing lies about yourself. There, there are things, by the way, in the treatment world we've known all along, but now there's a bit of a science to help connect them. Uh-huh. The tenacity, um, I think, uh, you know, I can hear some listeners thinking about that big word, fear, <laughs> right. which is such a powerful... How, in your work, how have you found fear to be connected to craving, if, if at all? I, you know, I don't know the answer. It's just a question. Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, fear... Fear is at the heart of why we avoid looking at difficult. Well, there's two things, two fundamental reasons why we avoid looking at things. You know, one is habit. We're just not aware of it, and so we don't mm-hmm. look at it. Um, but, you know, the other is is really, you know, not wanting to look at it or feeling like we might be afraid of it. And, and I think fear, fear causes us to avoid autopsying our own behaviors. You know, if you, like you brought up the treatment world, I mean, you think about, people in, in early recovery and the profound fear they have at doing inventory, for example, yeah. uh, and, and taking a, a fourth step and, and uh, looking at, not even sharing with somebody else, but just, just the mere act of looking at it themselves is terrifying. And, and I think if you can't look at your behaviors and then begin to connect what is common about those behaviors, um, you know, you have no hope. I mean, you're, you're a slave to habits. In the end, only questioning can eliminate habits, can move you beyond habits. And yeah. that's, that's a very human thing. You know, animals, that, that differentiates us from animals, our, our ability to question, our habits to change our behaviors in response to questions. Now, if we can't see things clearly, then we need somebody else to help us see them. Right. But in the end, it's the act of questioning that lets us move beyond those habits. And, and, we've, yeah, and we've been scary. talking with Dr. Manajwala, and we're going to take a break here. And, um, and you, you said something that made my ears kind of perk up, and we'll touch on it when we come back, about autopsying our behavior. And when we come back, we're going to talk about uh, addiction is addiction. <laughs> we'll be right back. You're 
listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, Family Center Recovery for Co-occurring Mental Illness and Substance Abuse Disorders. Step into the doorway to conscious choice, greater health, and well-being. Attain the balance that you've been seeking. Tune in and turn on 1111 Talk Radio. Feed the mind. Embrace positively. Release the tension. Step out of fear. Host Simran Singh will help you broaden your mind and open your heart toward a greater understanding of how to take charge of your life. 1111 Talk Radio is here every Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time on 7th Wave Network. 1111 Talk Radio. Because shift happens. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back. We're talking with Dr. Omar Manajwala. I've pronounced his name correctly every time so far, so <laughs> we're doing good. We've been talking about his new book. It's really a good book. It's called Craving, Why We Can't Seem to Get Enough. And uh, the doctor has worked at Hazelden for many years as their medical director and, and many, many other places. Uh, and I know a lot of his... Uh, the stuff in this book comes from real, real life experience. And uh, before we go any farther, if listeners want to find out, the book is available wherever books are sold, of course, but this is the doctor's website where you can go and, of course, ask him questions, communicate. He's very active in social media. So if you get your pen out, the website is www.cravingbook.com. Pretty simple. From there, you can find and connect with all the other avenues to uh, learn where he's at and, and uh, ask him some questions and and uh, about this fascinating issue. I, if I took a very doctor, this is not probably the right way to do it, but just took a poll. You know, I would venture to say there's very few of us listening to this that aren't affected by this issue. And yeah. Sure. Some of us, some of us, more than others, and you know, when you cross the line into where the the behaviors become uh, very dangerous to your health, and it's mentioned in your bio, you know that some of us will do anything, right? Yep. You know, at the expense right. uh, expense of our bodies, brains, bank accounts, and relationships. And at the end of the last segment, you touched on 
the importance of, we talked about fear, and the only way to really do anything about this is to look at who we really are. And you mentioned, you said something I've never heard before. You said we have to autopsy our behavior. And I think it's just absolutely fascinating way to put it. And, and I'll turn it over to you after this quote you use. Chapter 4 is addiction is addiction. And it's how all these behaviors are related. And this is a George Carlin quote. It's tremendous. Just because you got the monkey off your back does not mean the circus has left town. Yeah. Well, <laughs> so right. addiction is addiction. And this is really where you've connected the dots, isn't it? Yeah, so, I mean, you know, and I think this has been the question, this is the question that comes up over and over again, you know, and, and it comes up in its most simple form, which is if I'm an alcoholic, should I, should I, quote, be allowed to smoke marijuana or something else? And, you know, there's a lot buried in that, in that, uh, in, in that response. I think, you know, we're allowed to do whatever we want, and, and I think that's, that's part of the problem there, that we, what are the choices we make? And, but I tell you, these, these, what I discovered after digging through the science on this is that, um, you know, these addictions are not identical completely, but they're much more alike than they are different. And that's really the finding here, which is cravings are much more alike than they are different, and these addictions are much more alike than they are different. So I go through... In, in that chapter, sort of describing how, how gambling addiction is like food addiction and how food addiction is like sex addiction mm-hmm. and alcoholism and drug addiction and what are the similarities and then what are some of the differences? What do we know about those differences? But the reality is that they're much more in common and uh, the good news on that is that ultimately when it comes time to doing something about these addictions, there's 90 plus or more percent overlap between the actions. So there's a core set of actions that you can do for any type of craving, regardless of what it is, and that will put you in a good position to to manage your cravings. And then there are some things you have to do specifically for certain types of addictions. But this this core basis is rather substantial, and there's a, there's a lot of this overlap. And we know genetically people who have certain types of addictions are also likely to have others. And we know about people who come into rehab and they, they get clean off of one particular drug, but then sexual acting out becomes an issue or they become obese or, you know, smoking. Nicotine is the disease that killed Bill Wilson. It kills a you know, half million people a year in the United States, uh, one in five deaths. So, you know, all that stuff, the secondary stuff that really ends up becoming primary. And, and you talk about the core, uh, the core, I forget the word you use, but what are some of those core things that are involved in dealing with these, you know, and getting help? I mean, I, I know one of your chapters is about you, you can't do this alone, right? Right, right. So you have to, you have to connect with others. That's critical. And, uh, and, you know, groups are, groups are very important to recovery. And, and then don't forget the most important group of all, which is your family. And yeah. uh, for folks who are in recovery from addiction, I know that family relationships sometimes cannot be restored. And for others, family is often the final frontier. And, and for others, they're immersed in family and can't get away. But whatever the situation is, Family is a group that exerts tremendous influence, and that's a that's a group that needs to be addressed, and it needs to be it, it needs to be worked on. So I think groups and and if you look at people changing all sorts of behaviors, not just in addiction, but you know you people go to yoga classes and they exercise together, they're more successful. And Meetup.com, which is an amazing 
sort of repository of people connecting around shared ideas. I mean, there's a power to the group that the individual simply cannot. So that's, a, that's one of those core things that really does make a difference. And, and there are many others, you know, um, finding a sense of purpose. It turns out that people who have a sense of purpose do better when it comes to cravings. Developing and practicing healthy habits and routines. And then, you know, my favorite, uh, altruism, helpfulness to others, that there's actually a body of research on helpfulness and addiction, helpfulness and cravings. And uh, so the things that work for cravings across the board are often somewhat surprising. I think if you didn't have addiction and didn't know about 12-step recovery, you should be rather surprised that helpfulness would reduce cravings. Uh Uh-huh. Which takes us to, and and we, we kind of, made a gentleman's agreement we wouldn't talk about the brain too much because it can get kind of complicated. <laughs> and I'm really glad you brought up the fact that, you know, just because we see some pictures and this happened, uh, you know, we need to to realize that there's a whole lot of other things that are going on right. you know, outside of that brain. And, and, and you talk in one of your chapters about plasticity. And right. this is probably the thing that fascinates me the most. Um, right. I've seen people in recovery, uh, you know, they talk about you change your actions and you'll change the way you think. Right. Um, those ideas are, have been in Buddhism and Christianity and religious faiths for thousands of years. Right. So, you know, I, we're definitely on to something that's really, really going on. And you talk about how these thoughts, actions, and experience actually change your brain. Right. So obviously the family and group is a part of that, but, but what are some of the other things that are really important to this piece? Well, you know, and, and just, to, just to mention that, you know, when I say that these things change your brain, I mean, what I mean is that, just to make it crystal clear for your listeners, your thoughts and your actions actually change the physical properties of your brain. Mind over matter. I mean, you... Literally, the, the, the brain tissue itself changes in response to your actions. And, and I cite some studies about that. One is about, um, you know, people who are practicing a piano riff and how the part of their brain that is responsible for their fingers grows. And then you take people and just have them imagine practicing a piano riff. They don't even move their fingers. They're just thinking about playing the riff in their head. And the physical properties of their brain change, not just the chemicals, not just the neurotransmitters, but the actual real estate in the brain that's devoted to your fingertips changes in response to that. Now, I think it's important to sort of let that sink in because what that means is that what you do doesn't just affect how you are now, but it affects how you will be in the future. This is why the research on the Buddhist monks who were meditating showed that there were persistent changes in their brains when they weren't meditating. And this, is, and this links very neatly with, you know, the recommendations in 12-step recovery that, you know, what you do for that hour has an impact for the next 23 hours. And we see all sorts of evidence of that in clinical practice and helping people in people's lives. And now the, the science is really catching up to it. Uh, it's you know, it's just it's exciting to think that the brain can physically uh, physically change due to. Yeah. I know some of the research. You know, this frontal cortex lights up in people yep. that do prayer and meditation on a very very regular basis compared to those that don't, and you know, different parts of the body. So this prefrontal cortex. Are are you kind of in agreement with many 
lots of people talk about it today that are in the neuroscience that sort of that's where the God gene is or where God is or spirituality. <laughs> yeah, or no, do I don't, really I don't actually hold with that. I mean, I, my, my sense on it is that, um, you know, it's this neuroscience is not ultimately the tool to discover the origin of spirituality. I, I just don't believe that that's the case. But uh-huh. I think what happens is that the complexity of the brain and the the complexity of the functions and the interplay of the functions is, sort of reveals um, that we are um, connected in ways that uh, would not ordinarily seem. So, for example, you know, unlike sort of, you know, vision, you can point to a spot in the brain, maybe in the cortex that's responsible for vision for, for, or, you know, another part of the brain that might be responsible for regulating respiration or something. There's no spot in the brain that we will be able to uh, point to. You know, Descartes, you know, looked for the pineal gland, and we, we will never find one little spot in the brain because that's not how our brain works. Rather, our, our brain is the is the interplay between circuits and and uh, processes, and uh, I think that if spirituality is to be found anywhere, um, and I'm not so much a futurist, but if it's to be found anywhere, it's going to be found in the connections between those parts of the brain and the connections between brains of different people uh, with each other, and then and then uh, you know so, somewhere in that play. But what I will say is about it is this. There, there does appear to be, um, uh, you know, with mirror neurons and with other, other aspects uh, of the brain, there, there does appear to be the sense that we need to have an awareness that something is bigger than us. We need to have the flexibility to accept surrogate decision-making. We need to be able to be flexible if we're going to change. If we're gonna, if we need to be willing to change our beliefs if we're going to change our behaviors. Tremendous. We're talking... Again, with Dr. Omar Manajwala, and we're talking about his book, Craving, Why We Can't Seem to Get Enough. And when we come back, I think in our last segment, we'll touch a little more on the spirituality aspect and some very basic, simple tips of how to deal uh, with the things that lead up to these cravings and the behaviors that we're trying to change. And uh, we'll be right back in a couple minutes. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Do you have undue stress in your life? It may be more than just a hormonal imbalance. It could also be related to environmental factors, genetic modifications, chemicals, radiation, and more. We are living with revolutionary changes in our environment and outside influences have just as much to do with stress and poor health as internal influences. Join Dr. Shanhong Liu every Wednesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time for Vibrant Life. 
Restore the Roots of Health on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Learn more. Live better. Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Thank you. We're in our last segment. Uh, this is John McAndrew. We've been talking with Omar Manajwala, and uh, we really appreciate him being on the show today, talking about his book and craving why we can't seem to get enough. Again, the website is, uh, if you've got your pens and pencils out, is www.cravingbook.com. Mm-hmm. And there you can get a hold of the doctor. You can ask him questions. You can find out. Uh, what he's up to, and, you know, he's really on the front edge. He's really a thought leader in all this, uh, not just the science, but, you know, we're going to talk more about spirituality, which is almost like going back to some things that worked. And I want to touch on just a couple things we we talked about at the very end of the last segment and uh, about spirituality and and. You used a term again. You've used two or three today that I, I have to write down, and I really love them. Um, surrogate decision, decision-making. And can you expand on that just a little bit? And we did a little in the break. So, I mean, I think, you know, if, if you're – people often ask, you know, what is the one skill required to uh, recover from cravings and from addictions? There's just one skill Right. And I, I think it's not, it's not doing what you don't want to do. A lot of people will say, well, you have to be willing to do what you don't want to do. Um, well, most people with cravings are already doing what they don't want to do. So that, that's, a, that's, that's not really something new. Um, I think the fundamental skill is doing something that you don't even think is necessary, something that strikes you at the moment as completely unrelated, so, something that just seems maybe even ridiculous or silly, but you're doing it simply because someone else has suggested it. So this capacity to accept surrogate decision-making, or like, you know, in 12-step in parlance, sponsorship, if you will, uh, uh, that, that's critical because in the end, we cannot rely on our ability to see things clearly because we know, I mean, that, that's what the research has shown, and I point that out in the book, that cravings change the way you look at the world. They change your memory. They change the conclusions you draw about the data and your experiences. If you, if you attempt to answer questions based on that, you will end up relapsing. And your brain will lie to you. Yeah, right? and it does all the time. All the time. Yeah. So you mentioned the 12-step uh, uh, in relation to surrogate decision-making, sponsorship. In your book, you talked about some research that was done. And, and I always get touched when I can close my eyes and see real people. And you talked about yeah. some veterans with PTSD oh, and, yeah. some, and yeah. some research you did. And also with children that have had very abusive upbringings, and you talk about when, when the things that trigger them, the thoughts, uh, for the guys, the vets, for example, uh, images are put up of very horrified things that happened in war, which are at the root of their, their fear, and you found, the research found, that when it was done in a safe environment, right, with other people around, 
right. that the amygdala, the activity actually calmed down. Uh, right. The fear, if I'm saying that properly. That's the right. The fear That's went right. away. So there yeah. was safety. And what is that a part of this group stuff? What happens to the brain there? And isn't that amazing that, that, uh, that we, you know, because think about it. Isn't that what recovery is about, telling each other our stories in a safe way until they don't hurt so much? Isn't that, isn't that the story you hear over and over again from people in recovery who the first yeah. time they had to tell their fifth step it was a certain very, very painful, difficult thing? Then they hear these fifth steps, and then over time the, the, the wound ha- is healing and doesn't hurt so much. And here you have people with post-traumatic stress disorder, combat veterans, and also childhood and other types of trauma, and that, that part of the brain that lights up that amygdala, which is involved in fear and emotional reactivity, that that starts to calm down as well. And so, yes, I mean, exactly. That's part of the spirituality of the solution that I propose in the book, which is that we, we really do need to uh, see things differently, be teachable, connect with others in a safe environment find people with a similar problem, create this sense of belonging. These are all the things that can help to, to you know, mature us through this process of managing cravings. And then does that not, this is a question, and I, and I think I know the answer a little bit, but does that not help to, uh, I don't know the proper word, but if your brain is lying to you, doing these experiences, not thinking, but actually it appears to be that it's always action. It's always doing something. Starts to tell those that, uh, that part of the brain that's lying to you in a very safe way that this is not true. That's not true. This is not true. This is what the but, truth is, right? Right. So, so yeah. there's, well, and there are times when thinking can do that as well. Certainly I think actions have a more... Uh, Profound effect, but there's okay. a there's a time for each, and and certainly you know thoughts and actions do that. I'll say that yes, you can begin to see things more clearly, certain things more clearly. But it, perhaps even more important than that, you can develop habits that will protect you against the future times when your brain will lie. So it's not like you get into recovery, right, and then your brain stops lying to you, but rather you are forever vulnerable to your brain lying to you. It will always do so because these biases that I talk about in the book are forever present. You may find them in one thing and then they'll pop up somewhere else. But can you develop habits that protect you against seeing the world in the wrong way? So like, for example, you know, if your habit is to take a certain road home or call your sponsor at a certain time or go to certain meetings or et cetera, then those habits may carry you through times when your brain lies to you. And that's as or perhaps even more important than, than correcting the lies. Right. So you, you take, in terms of stages of change, you know, something some people can relate to, you're the, you prepare sure. to do some stuff and then you take the actions. Right. And then you, then you maintain that with this, these these good good you know good habits which right. um and so you know that's all very spiritual stuff and if i'm someone listening today and, and i'm having uh let's say cravings uh anxiety you know thoughts i can't stop all these things that you talk about you know, what are a few basic little tips or strategies that we, we have? I think you've told us already that the work is done before they come. I mean, it's more right. appropriate to. So, so what are some of these strategies so we can get those in before we let right, you go right. today? 
Well, I mean, and, and so at a high level, it's about finding your authentic self. I mean, at a high level, it's about altruism, and it's about finding that love, that love for yourself and for others that can neutralize that shame. And, and the, the roadmap for that, you know, it begins with avoiding dangerous situations and developing these healthy habits and routines, finding a sense of purpose, you know, creating this sense of belonging, connecting with people who have a similar problem. You know, we talked about inventorying your behaviors, mm-hmm. accountability. Meditation plays a huge role when it comes to reducing cravings. Being teachable, seeing things differently. And each of these areas, I think, requires, you know, it, t- it takes work, and there's a lot of direction that needs to be offered there. Um, helpfulness and, and meeting your needs in a, in a healthy way rather than in an artificial way. So, like, for example, people talk about um, maybe they drank for emotional reasons. I, I, I don't actually believe that in most cases. I, I think that there are exceptions. But in general, what we call emotional eating or emotional drinking should really be called non-emotional eating. Because mm-hmm. if, if there's anything we do in response to emotions, it's usually in response to suppressing those or, or not adequately expressing them. And so, you know, I think meeting our needs in a healthy way is, is at the core of recovery from cravings. Thank you so much. Um, You know, we at One Hour at a Time really do appreciate you being here. We thank Hazelden. We've been speaking with Dr. Omar Manajwala, uh, and his book is called Craving, Why We Can't Seem to Get Enough. You can find all sorts of information about him in the book at www.cravingbook.com. And once again, we thank you very much for being on the show today. What a privilege. Thank you, John. All right. Bye-bye. Appreciate you joining us today for one hour at a time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour at a time. We'll see you next week.